Well, we're in Acts chapter 6 today, and um, we, it's, a, it's a interesting that we would be here in our study today because it pertains to what's going on in the life of our church today, and so I think you'll find this at least interesting as we go forward. And the big question each week is, what do you leave in and what do you leave out? We're only going to cover seven verses today. Normally we will take a, a whole chapter, but today it's just seven verses. But This is called the Acts or the Acts of the Apostles because what it does is it tells us what happened in the early church from the time that Jesus goes back to heaven for the next 35 years. And and it gives us a glimpse into the history and the theology of that early church. What did they believe? What did they hold so, so, so valuable? And so one of the things that we've done as we've traveled through on the top of your outline, we've mentioned each week that Acts chapters 1 and 2, that takes place in 30 AD. 30 AD. And so you want to write that down. But we're going to be in Acts chapter 6. And what you find is Acts chapters 5, 6, and 7 all take place within about a year. So that's going to be about 35 AD. So you want to write that down. So several years have gone by. One of the things that we mention is I, I like to look at what's, what's here, but also sometimes the backstory of what's taking place. And what I've learned in, in my Christian walk, and certainly as you walk with the Lord, that God is always putting us in situations to increase our faith, to increase our trust in Him. So one of the things that we find is if you look at a map of Israel, and uh, we've talked about this many times, but Israel's broken up into three sections. So if you look at the, the northern part of Israel, that area is called Galilee, and you have what's called the Sea of Galilee, which is a large freshwater lake. And it was in the area of Galilee up north that Jesus calls his disciples. So the Peter, James, and John, they have a fishing company and uh, a very, very prosperous company. Matthew is a tax collector, also very prosperous. And so Jesus calls his disciples from some very um, prosperous backgrounds to walk away from that and to follow him. Well, as you go a little bit further south in Israel, you have this area called Samaria, which is where the Samaritans live. And if you know anything about the Bible, you know that good Jewish people, they don't mix with Samaritans. So uh, there's a whole story there about how the Samaritans are right in the middle. And maybe we'll talk about that when we get to chapter 8. But when you come all the way down to the bottom of Israel, you have this area called Judea. Now, Judea is uh, the bottom part, but there's this town called Jerusalem there in Judea. And what we find is that Jesus calls his disciples, his apostles, to walk away from all of their connections, their businesses. He calls them to walk away from their relationships, all of their connections, and to go all the way down to this place of Jerusalem. And it's going to be the center of hostility against what it is that God is doing. And he's going to call his apostles to trust in the center of hostility where they have no backup plan to trust him to provide for the church and to do some incredible things. And we're going to look at something that he calls the disciples to trust him for as we get into Acts chapter 6 today. So we saw that and then one of the things that we saw is that when the church began, the the disciples, the apostles, would just continually go to the temple to pray. And so over the first five years, they would meet in the temple. So when we were in Acts chapter 3, and this is about a year, if we can put the verse up there, uh, about a year after the church's birth, about 31 AD, it says, one day 
Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer. They just very naturally went to the temple. Well, then you go to 35 AD, and we saw this last time. It says all the believers used to meet together in, the, in Solomon's colonnade. That was just a part of the temple. So as the church is growing, they're still going to the temple, and they would actually meet in the temple. Now, the temple's 35 acres, so they would just find a corner, and they would all meet there. But last week we saw something in Acts chapter 5. So if you look in your Bibles at Acts chapter 5 and verse 40, we saw this last week. It was the religious leadership there at the temple. And uh, I won't get into the backstory, but the apostles have been arrested. It says they took his advice and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them. Some of your Bibles will say that they beat them. And we looked at that last week. And that word uh, to flog or to beat, the way that it's described, one of the words is to flay. And the idea is means to separate the skin. And so what we talked about is that this beating that the apostles took would scar them for the rest of their lives as they, as they endured that. Well, it's at that point that everybody realizes that it's no longer safe for believers to go to the temple because of what happens to the apostles. It appears at that point that the believers are no longer going to the temple, and it's been about five years, and now they're going to be meeting in other facilities uh, throughout Jerusalem. And so uh, that'll be important for our study. Did they rent? Did they purchase? We don't really know, but we know that they are meeting in other places. So we're going to pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 6, and it says, now at this time, while the disciples were increasing, and I've underlined the word disciples, in number a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews. We'll talk about that. I've underlined both. Because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So as we get into this, one of the things that you notice is that it says the disciples were increasing, and we underline that. This is the first time in the book of Acts where believers are called disciples, and and, uh, you want to write that down. Now, the, the reason for that is because last week, in the last chapter, we saw that the disciples were beaten, again, to the place where they would be permanently scarred. We're going to find next week in the same town there's going to be the first martyr, and that will be Stephen. And so what took place is that people began to ask, is if I go to church and I'm associating with the church as a believer, could that happen to me? And then the question is, who's next? And we find out that that became very, very common. And we'll see that next week. But due to persecution, something happened in the church. And, and what happened was those who were in became fully in. And those who were on the fence became fully out. Because they knew if they associated with the church there in Jerusalem, what would happen to them. So here what you find is that there's been a change. And so now the believers are called disciples. The idea is this group is fully in, not just fully in when things are good, but they're fully in even in the midst of persecution. Does that make sense? So going on, what we find is that let me read verse six, uh, verse one again. It says, now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So what we find is that the church is growing, and any time a church grows, and you want to write this down, with growth came new challenges, new challenges. And it's going to talk about one today. 
So it, it mentions the, the Hebrew believers and then the Hellenistic believers. So the Hebrew believers, you want to write this down, they're all Jewish and they're all Christian. So, but the Hebrew believers came from a more Jewish culture. You want to write that down. So when they would go to synagogue, they would speak in Hebrew or they would speak in Aramaic and uh, they would be very, very conservative in their dress. Now, the Hellenistic Jewish people who are now Christians, they would come from a much stronger Greek culture. And you want to write that down, Greek culture. So in their synagogues, they would speak Greek. They would read from the Greek manuscript of the Old Testament. And the reason being is many of those grew up in parts, not in Jerusalem or not even in Israel, but in other parts of the world, they were still Jewish. They believed the same things, but they would then come back into, into Jerusalem. And so they, but they, they were all believers and they were all Jewish. They had the same theology, believed in the same God, but they were very different culturally. It's sort of like in church. Um, you know, some churches, and, and let me ask you a question, how many of you grew up in a church that was very different culturally. Um, for instance, they'd have a piano on one side, the organ on the other side, thrones in the front, got to have the thrones, and just behind the thrones there is the choir loft. Okay, so, so you've been there, you know that. And uh, so we believe the same thing, but we're, we're very, very different. And uh, can, I, can I tell you a quick story? So in church, I mean, I'm going to anyways, but... but <laughs> In church, there's very different cultures, and we believe the same things, but my first church that I pastored in coming out of seminary was the most wonderful, amazing church. Part of my heart will always be there. It's called the First Church of God in Defiance, Ohio. And uh, this was a church, they were so loving, they were so gracious, they embraced me. I was a single guy, they provided for me. My parsonage was this two-story farmhouse. I lived on 45 acres, had a pond, and I watched the mist come up every day, and deer playing out there. And It was really a wonderful place. The, the challenge for me was that I grew up in Miami. And so I go to this church, and uh, it's, one, it's a throne church. And so as a pastor, I have to sit on the throne in the front as one of the guys. I wasn't the lead pastor, but I was. A, and so have you ever wondered, now when, you're, you're, when you have to sit on the throne, your job is to act like you're listening and you have to nod your head like this. And at certain times you got to go, that's rich. That's rich. I'm, I'm going to write that down. And then you lean down and you go, pick up milk. <laughs> and then, you, yeah, oh, that's oh, amazing bread also on the way home. So, so you do that. So in this church, in this throne church, wonderful church, most wonderful people, but it's very different than my culture. There was a lady in our church and her name was Barb Bush. Now I only know that because at that time there was a Barb Bush in the White House. And so Barb was part of the, one of the larger sections of our church that, that the women would wear the blue jean dresses all the way down to the ground and their hair would always be in a, in a beehive. Have you, you seen this? Wonderful love Jesus. And so one day I'm there at the parsonage and there's a knock on the back door and I open the door and uh, it's Barb. And she says, Pastor, we just want to welcome you here to the church and uh, to welcome you, I thought we would bless you. And what I'm bringing you is a four squirrel casserole. Now, um, so I'm like, thank you. Uh, so let me just ask, how many of you have ever had squirrel? How about in the video of in your room? How many had squirrel? Okay. So now, now we know who lives in Jupiter Farms. Now, how many of you, you, 
You've never had squirrel in your life. How many? Okay. So now we know who lives in Abacoa. Okay. So it's very, very different. So, so she hands me this, this four squirrel casserole and she said, well, what does squirrel really taste like? Well, it tastes a lot like hamster come to find out, but <laughs> just kidding. And it was a wonderful, wonderful church. And they loved Jesus and they loved me, but I always felt like I was a fish out of water because I come from such a different cultural background. Does that make sense? And so sometimes in churches we believe the same thing, but we have a very, very different church culture. And so uh, we, you know, certainly I, I lived through some of that. So some of these these Hellenists who came from a more Greek culture, they would look on at the, those who came from a more Jewish background and they said, you're getting better care than what we're getting. And now keep in mind, they're all Jewish. Some are Hellenists, some are Hebrew, but they're all Jewish and they're all Christian. But this group feels like you're, you're, being, you're taking care of this group better. Now the question is, why is it that the church is now taking care of all of these widows? Well, one of the things that we find is that the Bible teaches that uh, widows are supposed to be taken care of by their family. That's not really a church responsibility. As a matter of fact, Paul would say this there in your outline. He says, if any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, she must assist them and the church must not be burdened so that, they might, so that it might assist those who are widows indeed. So, so supporting widows is always a family responsibility. However, in Jerusalem in that religious environment, when you said yes to Jesus, you were excommunicated. Now when you were excommunicated, what that meant was you were excommunicated from the religious life. Your family, if they were to stay in good, in, in good stead with the, the temple or the religious authorities, they would have to completely disown you. And so in that day, a woman couldn't just go out and get a job. You know, there, was, there was nothing. So you knew when you said yes to Jesus, you knew that you were losing all of your relationships, you were losing your family, and there was going to be nobody to take care of you. Does that make sense? So the disciples, they look on the apostles, they look on at this situation, and they say they're following Jesus. And so we believe it's going to be our responsibility to step up and to care for them. So they had to believe God for the resources to purchase all the food. And it appears that there's probably three or four hundred of these widows. And the reason that we would hold that is that they're going to need seven full-time people to oversee this one ministry. So this is a, a large thing that God is calling them to trust him for. But you would be walking away from your kids, your family, your grandkids. If you said, I believe in Jesus, everything else would stop in your life. So they've walked away from everything. They've turned to the church. The apostles say we need to do something. But then over time, these Hellenists, they began to look on and they said, it appears to us that the, that the Jewish widows are being taken care of in a better way than we are. And so go ahead and write this down, that the result of this is that there's a growing frustration among church members. Now it's also important to understand that this is a very serious problem. This is not a preference problem. Uh, a preference problem is where somebody says, you know, I like the music, I don't like the music. That's a preference thing. This is a situation where they are eating, we are not eating. So this is a very serious thing. And I would also say that um, I would also say that that because the apostles are the ones who are specifically 
overseeing this, it's probably not that one group was, was not being taken care of, but it's, it, it, but it's still the perception. And, and you know, so what we'll see as we go. So verse 2, it says, so the 12, and remember the 12 are the ones who are overseeing this ministry up to this point. The 12 summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Now what's important to understand is that this, this isn't really something that we should be doing, but write this down. The apostles aren't saying that they're above it. They've been doing this. They've been doing this apparently for a couple of years, but this is turning into a full-time job as the number of these widows is increasing. So uh, the apostles had been overseeing the, the funding, the purchasing, and the distributing of this. And so again, it, since the apostles were the ones who were doing this, I, I would suggest that nobody's being slighted in this, but perceptually they, they think they are. So over time, the apostles realized that this is taking up more and more of our time, and what we're doing is neglecting the primary thing that we were called to do. So, so write this down. They realized it was time to cut what was good to do what was best. It's always good to take care of widows. It's always good to be there for those in need. It's always good to be there for those who are poor. There, there's nothing wrong with that. However, in this case, doing good was actually wrong. You want to write that down. And here, here's why it was wrong for the apostles to, can, to continue overseeing this personally. They weren't good at it. However, they were overseeing this ministry because it was 12 of them overseeing this ministry was only leading to frustration in the people who were receiving the ministry. They weren't gifted in that. They, they, they weren't good at that. And it just wasn't in their wheelhouse of giftedness. Does that make sense? And so we see that there's this growing frustration within the church. So they come to terms with, we need to focus in on what it is that we do best. Now, it's, they're not saying that they're not, they'll still do other things, but this is becoming a full-time job, so we need somebody else to step in and take that. So to solve the problem, verse 3, it says, therefore, the apostles say, select, therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Now, it's at this point that the apostles realize, and please write this down, they realize that it's time to empower the right people for ministry. The right people need to be taking this on. I put that verse on your outline because some of your Bibles will say it a little bit differently. And it says, therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. I have in my, my notes, I didn't put it on the outline, but I have in my notes that it says that we might put in charge of this task. Um, this would never work if the, uh, if the apostles were micromanagers or control freaks. So the idea is they have to hand this off and say, you've got to run with it, represent the church, but, but you have to run with it is the idea. But we do see some qualifications to oversee ministry, and this comes right from the apostles. You can write this down or underline it in the verse. First of all, they say, we, we want it to be among you, among you. So some, some people that you, you know, they have to have a good reputation. The idea is that there's money involved, there's resources involved, so you don't want to have any hint of somebody's taking something, so can you trust them? 
And, and then I love this little verse here. It says, full of the spirit and wisdom on your outline. Full of the spirit and of wisdom. So they have to be spiritual and practical. Now, the reason that's important, and tell me if you agree, if you've seen this, some people are spiritual, but they're not practical. And, and sadly, some people are practical, but they're not spiritual. And so you need both. You need both. There has to be the spiritual side, but then there has to be the practical side. And if you don't have one, one of those, it's going to be a big, a big problem because you're dealing with people's lives, you're dealing with their perceptions, and so you, you need that. So the, the apostles say, bring them forward and then we will appoint them. Verse 5, it says, now this statement found approval with the whole congregation and they chose Stephen. Underline him, we're going to talk about him, but I want you to notice something about him that's unique. A man full of faith, underline that, and of the Holy Spirit. A man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. In, in the Bible, one of the things that you find as, as you go through and miracles take place, you, you'll hear this, this phrase and it'll say, uh, be it done to you according to your faith. Your faith has made you well. Your faith. And, and Jesus says that three out of four of the miracles in the Bible, Jesus will use the phrase, your faith. Your faith. And so here what we see is a man, and the one thing that the Holy Spirit wants us to know is that he is a man who is full of faith. And we underline that. Would you look down at verse 8 real quick? In verse 8 it says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. So here you have, um, some people will say, you know, the, the miracles were given, and it was really the apostles that did the miracles. Well, initially that's true. But what we see is this is the first time in the Bible where somebody has faith and God is using them to perform miracles. Later on, some people would say, well, that all went away. But later on, what we find is Paul is going to write to the Galatian church, uh, Galatian churches. It's, an, it's a region, not a church. And Paul is going to write to this, this region of churches who has no apostle there at all. And he's going to say, does he then who provide you with the Spirit and work miracles among you does he do it by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And so what you find is many years later, where there is no apostle, miracles are taking place not by works of the law, but by hearing with faith. It just continues on. And we'll talk about that as we go. Verse 5 again, it's a Stephen full of faith and of the Holy Spirit and Philip. Now we're going to talk about Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. Now, a proselyte from Antioch means he was, he was uh, a Greek, non-Jewish. He became Jewish, and then he became a Christian, is the idea. So he's first a proselyte to the Jewish people, uh, uh, to the Jewish religion. So what we notice as, as uh, they bring these guys, in verse 6 it says, they brought them before the apostles, and after praying they laid their hands on them. They, they empowered them. And every commentary that you read on this will say that, uh, and every pastor will say, you notice that they prayed first and then they empowered. The, one of the biggest mistakes that we make in ministry as pastors is that we empower and then we find ourselves praying. 
and uh, they prayed first before they empowered. That's not for you, that's, that's for me, but, and for, for every pastor out there and every commentator who said that. But a couple of things that we notice about their ministry. First of all, their ministry was in their local church. Their ministry was in their local church. Uh, there on your outline, Paul would write to the churches in Galatia, and he says, through love, serve one another. When it says, in love, serve one another, that's believers serving believers. The only way you and I can ever fulfill that verse, and I just chose one, there are many, is when believers find a way to serve in their local church, serve one another. You would be surprised how many people will serve in every cause out there, and it appears every cause unless you attach Jesus to it in the local church, and all of a sudden, I don't do that. But the way that you serve one another is in the context of the local church. We tell everyone, no matter where you go to church, you need to find your place of serving in the context of your local church. That makes sense? So another thing that we see, it's in their local church, and we find that their ministry was unique to their church's situation. We are told of one ministry. This is how they handled the feeding of widows in their congregation. We're not told how they handled small groups. Uh, Certainly that was a challenge. How they managed the house churches, how they managed the large church meeting. We don't know about any of that. It just tells us this. But their ministry was unique to their church's situation. It's just highlighting one aspect. So as their ministry was unique to their church's situation, every church's ministry is going to be a little bit different. And so in, in our church, our, our, our situation is a little bit different than theirs. We have widows in our church, but we don't have three or four hundred. And so, but, but we, we have some unique situations. So could I just um, give a, a couple of shameless plugs here real quick? I'm going to, but, but, but give me permission so I just feel better. But you know, tomorrow we begin construction and uh, We've been very blessed over the course of the past few years. You know, we were, just a few years ago, we were at two services, and then we, we ran out of space. And so we began the video venue room, and hi to the, the guys who are in there. And the reason many of them are in there is, is because I stood up and said, we're out of space, and, and we need some people to move over. And so we were at two services, then we started the video venue, well, then this filled up again, and then we went to three services in the video venue. And this service, now today there's some empty seats in here, but it's empty because the next service is going to be the picnic after the service. But it's very common here in this service for people to walk in and there's no seats. Or a new family walks in and they say, well, we've got a couple of seats over here and we've got a seat over here if you don't mind splitting up your family. And, and there have been times because this has gotten so full, and certainly not today in this service, but, but it, commonly it's very full, where people will come in and because they don't have a place to sit or we have to split up their families, it feels very uncomfortable and they just walk out the door. And uh, we don't want to see that happen because we're here to reach as many people as we can possibly reach. So one of the ways that you can help while we're in construction for the next 18 months or so, if you could, could you help us by going to the video venue room and worshiping there while we're under the construction. We need about 100 people in this service on a normal weekend to go over there 
and, and be part of that until we get into the new building. If you could help us, that would be great. So go ahead and write down, free up seats by moving to the video venue. And, and we can wave at each other from, from there. See, they're waving back. Did, is that, see? Now, wait, tell, tell them we're lonely. We're lonely. Wave them over. Wave them over. Yes, see? You're invited. They love you. They want to see you. Grab a donut and a coffee on the way over. It's okay. So help that. Another thing that we find in this church is that you are the breedingest church on the planet. You are just baby makers, and uh, that is awesome. (laughs) And so one of the the ways that we've noticed that when people come to church, there's a few things they bring. First of all, uh, they bring their car. You have to have a parking. And uh, then they bring their kids. And so there has to be not, I don't like to say, a place for children, but here at Calvary, we want to create an environment where children are loved, they're taught about Jesus, they're pointed to Jesus in a, in a nurturing environment. And, and we need help in that area. And so if you could help and stretch and be part of that, that would be awesome. Because the, the, uh, there's just a tremendous need. There are other needs, so serve in children's ministry. There are other ministry needs. Uh, there's security there's ushering, there's the cafe team, there's the program team, there's prayer partners, there's greeters, parking team, group leaders. You know, it's just, it takes all of us doing our part to, to make this happen. Another thing we want to say about their ministry, and you want to write this down, is that their ministry wasn't glamorous, but it was indispensable. See, they weren't in front of anybody at this time, uh, but if they didn't do their part and take care of the widows, then the apostles wouldn't be able to focus in on what it is that they are called to do. And so everybody had to do their part. You've heard us say that it takes 140 people who show up each week to make this church happen, uh, who volunteer their time, they serve parking, children's, greeting, cafe, uh, a number of different ways. But it takes 140 people every single week. And so there's, there's a great need. There's a great need and there's a great opportunity for God to use you. But the truth is, if, if we don't all do our part, then this doesn't happen. So, so find your place of serving. Find your place to ser- of serving. Another thing that we find is that this was the starting point for their ministry, but their ministry was the beginning of a greater ministry, a greater ministry. We saw Stephan a few minutes ago there in your outline, and Stephan, full of faith and power, did wonders and signs among the people. And uh, certainly this is the first time somebody's doing miracles and they're not one of the apostles. But Philip, we also saw him, and when we get to chapter 8, it's going to say, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. And then around 54 AD, almost 20 years in the future, Philip is going to be remembered. It's going to say, we stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven. One of the seven. And the idea is that he didn't start off that way, but he started serving where there was a need. And God took that and God began to use him in much greater ways. So I want you to write this down. What we notice is that their ministry began not by saying, I'm not called to this, uh, but how can I help? How can I help? And so God took that heart and began to use it and brought them to a much greater ministry later. There was a need. There was a need. And that was the starting point. We believe here at Calvary that part of our job is just empowering people to begin to serve the Lord in the context of their local church and then see what God does with that.
Verse 7, it says, And the word of God kept spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests, we'll talk about that, were becoming obedient to the faith. And so here's the result when people began to do their, their part. First of all, we see, you can underline it or you can write it down, but first of all, we see that God's word spreads. God's word spreads. And then we find that as that happens, the disciples increase. They increase rapidly. And then it says that many of the priests, so what we find is that the key influencers in the city were converted. The priests would certainly be the key influencers in the city. And uh, you can imagine if you're a priest working at the temple and you say yes to Jesus, you have a good idea what that does to your job security. So, so they knew what they were saying yes to and what it would cost them. But the church kept growing. And many times what happens, many, many times what happens is that we think we need an outreach program. We need you know, this, this flashy new program. Well, here's what God says. I want you to notice this verse. Paul's writing, and he talks about the body of Christ. And he describes it like this. He says, the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, describing the body, according to the, you want to underline, proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building itself up in love, for building up of itself in love. The way that God grows the church is that each part of the body does its part. And God uses that to grow the church, to grow the body, to bring disciples in. I don't know how it is for you, but as I get older, I have this certain part of my body that I can squeeze. <laughs> wasn't, it wasn't always that way. And, and uh, am I alone in this? There was a time. But you know, you know what I find is that the more I have a fat on my body, it's part of the body but it's the stored energy. And what I find is that um, it, it kind of slows the rest of my body down. Do you agree with that? And, and so the big challenge that we have in our bodies and in the body of Christ is to do something with this because it's just sitting there. It's part of the body. Nobody questions that. But it's not really doing anything but in it's not doing anything, it has a way of slowing down the rest of the body. And so I want to encourage you, and we as a church encourage each of us, don't be fat on the body, showing up and sitting, but not really doing, taking the resources and slowing down the rest of the body. You want to find your place in the body of Christ, each part doing its part, the proper working of each individual part. That means that God has a place for you, a place for you, and he wants to use you. And that's how God grows the church. It's not a slick program. It's each person doing their part. I'm excited about this next step that we're taking as a church. It's a step of faith. It's a step of believing God for some great things. It's trusting that God is going to take this step of faith and he's going to reach many more people to bring into his kingdom in the number one most unchurched area in our country and, and one of the, uh, uh, or never churched areas of our country and one of the most uh, 
unchurched parts of our country. And God's going to use this church to do great things. I'm glad that you're here, and uh, I want to see God do great things, but it's going to take each part doing its part. And with that, I'm going to wrap up, and uh, we'll see you back at the picnic a little later on. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, as we wrap this up today, Lord, we see how you were calling your people to trust you, not in the place of comfort, but Lord, in the place of opposition, in the place of hostility, to trust you to provide. And then Lord, you allow this great need over here that they have to trust you not just to survive, but also Lord, to then provide. And Lord, you grow the apostles, you grow the disciples, you grow the church. And so Father, we thank you that you've called us also as we go forward, Lord, to trust you, to see you do great things, to be used by you, to reach many, many thousands of people for you. And Lord, we look forward to all that you're going to do. Help us to be effective in all that we do. Help us to be spirit-led. Help us to keep our eyes on you and in step with your spirit. Father, thank you for this next step in our church. I pray, God, that you keep each and every one of us till we meet again. It's in Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.